listening to Heavy Board. And we're recording this on June 28th, 2023. The first time I encountered Charles Simic's poetry was in my last few years of undergraduate study. And yes, it was in a poetry course, listeners. I had an excellent teacher and mentor that I just chanced into getting for several classes as a transfer student from the local community college. Supposedly, those were the only sections left as the transfer students got last pick on the course registration. Their loss, my gain, as it turns out. And that first book, which enamored me to Simic's work in a way, was his prize-winning collection from 1989, The World Doesn't End, a quite brilliant collection of prose poems that solidified Simic as a great poet in the literary canon, in the history books. Ironically, he often said that he never expected the book to be praised so much. He had been publishing collections since the 1960s, and getting his biggest, most celebrated work in 1989, I'm sure, was a shock to him. But as we often discuss on this podcast, listeners, it's always so hard to tell as an artist and creator which projects will resonate with readers on a higher level than ever expected. And that's a good thing, a benefit, a rare instance of celebration for poets, writers, artists, it's probably better not to know. Knowing or anticipating only leads to disappointment, or worse, fatigue. And that's what we have here. But I was soon to find out, after my first introduction with Simic's best book, that the poems in The World Doesn't End, again, his prize-winning collection, were a big step away from his normal style of poetry. And I admit, full-throated, upfront listeners, that the book being discussed today, Scribbled in the Dark, from 2017, is not one of his best works. And it comes back to that constant theme we always seem to bump up against on the podcast. Decline. Burning out. And of course, no one is to blame for this sort of thing. It takes so much energy and work to write a book of poems, that it absolutely takes something out of you, even a physical toll on the body when reworking a collection to perfection. But I will go into why this book felt so hollow to me as I read through its short 60-odd pages, shells of poems, making my notes and scribbling my ideas and thoughts in my cheap Amazon-branded legal pad. But as I discussed on the final parts of our Emily Dickinson series, this book strikes me as demarcating the decline of Simic's body of work, living off a very well-earned reputation from decades before and putting out what may be one of his weakest collections of poetry here. Lament. There seems to be a huge emphasis on lament in this collection. And I've come to notice this as a theme in a lot of poets' later works. Tony Hoagland comes to mind his final book of poems full of lament, but Simic's book seems to focus mainly on the destruction of the world and its art. A common sentiment as we age, and an important one to document, I might add. I'd never argue with that. Older artists must document this in their work. But I don't blame anyone for focusing on this theme of lament because it is a ripe theme for a collection of poems. It always has been. Yeats comes to mind. The world we once knew, lived, loved, gone, smashed to pieces of its former self. It's almost a cliche, it is so common, but that's where we expect the poets to come in, to give us new ways to express the old cliches, the lament, the decline. And unfortunately, in this collection, Simic doesn't dress it up, make it new or unique in any way. And as the cover art of an old man on a park bench by himself feeding birds implies, most of the poems in this collection consist of just an old man observing things in so neutral a fashion, or at least pretending to be neutral, that it almost becomes a giant cliche in its own right. 
turning back in on itself and folding up what could have been a powerful punch in each line of this book. The images of death are everywhere in this collection, but not in a particularly meaningful way. And what I mean by that is it seems to be so neutral in these sorts of revelations on death, these observations, without any judgment on the part of the speaker or the poet, that it becomes a monotone radio broadcast spilling out across the universe. Little happenings, little laments, some so small as to be just six lines long. And I've stated my feelings about very short poems on this podcast before, but I'll say it again. If it's short, I expect a lot from it, listeners. It better be good. But these poems mostly end up being little sound waves of no particular interest or importance. Just observations. Observations of an aging man as he wanders city streets. The lament for the world that no longer exists. And I was reflecting on this theme in terms of the Gary Snyder book previously discussed on this podcast. And the way I'd say Snyder lamented for a world he didn't actually know, but imagined. Romanticized into existence. But that's not what Simic is doing here. He actually lived in the world he's lamenting over. And he sees that it's gone. And Simic makes clear that this is in terms of the art of poetry and literature. It's standing, perhaps, in the culture, or maybe it's importance in the culture and more broadly, or perhaps the level of which it is taken seriously, which, of course, is not seriously at all, listeners. But there is also a sort of lament for the functioning and processes of the civilized world, for lack of a better term. How there's a sense in a lot of these poems that things don't work as they used to. And of course, as good readers, we should consider the possibility of that extending as far as the speaker of the poems, maybe even Simic himself. Aging. Things not working as they used to. Eyes, ears, etc. Taste buds dying. And also banking forms, phone apps, etc. Massive differences from a previous world. So different. It feels like it's gone. And maybe it is. But as I always say, listeners, you should always strive the best you can, at the very least, to engage as fairly as possible. And I tried to here. Even with my bias in favor of Simic and his earlier work, as I said, I want to be clear, his reputation is clearly earned over the course of his lifetime. And I'm not taking anything away from that by criticizing his later collection of poems. How could I? I'm just talking about this collection of poems, scribbled in the dark. But this collection is, and I hate to say it, feels a little phoned in. So much so that, as I said, it ends up being observation any aging man could make in any city in the world not the observations of a great poet. And it's disappointing. There is no specific city mentioned, even. And while that isn't a deal-breaker for these poems in Simic's Scribbled in the Dark, or any poems for that matter, it is surprising that someone of Simic's caliber got so bland and lackadaisical with it. Almost all the poems in this collection appear to be so minimalist that they end up saying very little, if anything. Nothing noticed that's unique or clever, making them almost banal. And that makes the observations fall a little limp instead of propelling us into a wonder of poetic realm, exploring thoughts, meanings of life, love, happiness, death. But no. It's just a couple going to dinner and the speaker noticing something about other tables. And, as I said, not even interesting things, listeners. I will get to what I would call filler poems in more detail later in the podcast, listeners, but I'll just point to a few things that got on my nerves as I was reading through. From the very first poem on page three, I was already agitated. 
The poem, Dark Night's Flycatcher, left me bewildered with how little was on the page, how brief and unimaginative. The sign of a literary giant who has burned out, at the very least, declined from their enormous peak. Observation taking the place of meaning-making. The lament is supposed to be the meaning in some of these poems, and, admittedly, it does fill in the gaps in places. But I really was shocked at how uneventful this entire collection was. Again, mostly seeing people at restaurants, while the speaker is also at a restaurant. The image is loosely connected. Of course, I take it as a sure sign that Instagram and TikTok poetry has fully taken over the literary world. And even the greats, like Charles Simic, are not out of its grasp on the art form. And Simic does seem to lament that too, as he rightfully should, and so should you, listeners. What passes as a good poem in almost all of the major magazines right now is disgraceful. And Simic clearly knows it. He knew it back in 2017. We can all see it. But he also seems to, in a weird sort of way... A sort of hands up in the air, giving up pose is something I can't get out of my mind as I was reading through this collection. A sort of succumbing to the trend of everything is good, so therefore nothing is good. Almost exasperated at trying to resist. And that comes across in this collection. But one of the positive aspects of this book is the author being so close to death. It really seems to play out in each poem. Poems like Signs of the Time, about a closed-up library, and Missed Chance, a poem that really shows the dismal image of the life of a poet, a melancholy of regret, despair at the state of literature, the world, a loneliness almost. And that is perhaps the most moving part of the entire collection. As I said already, listeners, Simic is a master there's no doubt about it, just not with this particular book. And what I want to talk about in more detail in today's episode is this interesting phenomenon of artists declining as they reach old age. I will not speculate as to why any given artist has this happened to them, but it is just an interesting fact about living. The energy it takes to create something, especially something great, in line with the giants who came before us all, poems like All Things in Precipitous Decline becomes a major theme in this book. The literary decay, the societal decay, the decay of the speaker, the poet. And of course, the Yeats line comes to mind when reading this. That is no country for old men, outgrowing the world that grew us. And this is very much in Simic's Scribbled in the Dark. But it is also so bland, so observational in places, in the literary tradition of Frank O'Hara, maybe, but less funny and entertaining, that I couldn't help but be bored by the almost cliche things Simic seems to find worthy of putting into a poem in his old age. There is a poem in this collection literally called On Cloud Nine, a cliche so glaring, the title made me pause and really think about what an older artist would be thinking in terms of not editing that one out, not giving us a little more flourish or color to it, spinning it in a unique way. But no, it's a title in this collection. Maybe you're starting to see what I'm talking about, listeners. A decline in the final product, an aging out of the discipline that made him so great in his lifetime, and as I read along with Simic in this collection, I found myself getting saddened by the state of the art too, receiving the message that Simic was going for. So, perhaps this book did accomplish what it wanted to. But by being so subtle about it, I think the general idea is lost, buried in too deep. The plain, banal observations of an old man sitting in a restaurant. The good old days behind him, just doesn't do enough to carry the collection home. It sputters out almost from page one. And just one little line. That's it. One little line. 
in this entire book references his childhood in Nazi-occupied Europe. Just one. And that one line does so little where he chose to place it that I have to wonder what he was thinking, if he was thinking at all. Decline, that ugly part of life no one wants to talk about. And this is true for everyone, not just artists. We are all only human. We decay. And the world we knew, grew up in, usually decays long before we reach that point ourselves, especially as things change faster than ever now with the internet, etc. And Simic is capturing that in this collection. He is. I just wish it wasn't so uneventful and small. The clear aftermath of a towering figure's career. Heavy. Bored. Baby, all right, here we go. Another episode of Heavy Board. And today, listeners, we are doing uh, Scribbled in the Dark by Charles Simic. This is his 2017 collection of poetry. Uh, I believe that's when it was published. It came out 2017. Uh, let me just double check here. 2017. So those that don't know, Simic has been a figure in the literary world, mainly the poetry world, for decades now. He taught for years at um, New Hampshire. Yes, yes, it says New Hampshire here. He's uh, emeritus now at the University of New Hampshire, and he apparently has taught there since 1973. Uh, he is very well regarded. Uh, just to give you an idea, uh, he received the Pulitzer Prize, the Griffin Prize, the MacArthur Fellowship, the Wallace Stevens Award, uh, you know, all of that stuff. He was Poet Laureate in 2007 for the entire United States. And as I wanted to stress in that monologue, you know, he's, he's a big deal. He's a big deal. He's, he's, he's a well-earned reputation. And of course, now uh, in 2023, he is aging out. And even in 2017, I think. And if you notice, <clears throat> at least I noticed on this one, this little hardcover edition from HarperCollins, um, there isn't a whole lot of like praise. There's praise for another book on the back. Uh which, again, should say something about this collection, listeners. But I don't want to give the wrong idea. I respect Semek. I think he's a good writer. He's a great kind of contributor. He's canonized. Uh, but it, according to this book, and I haven't read his most recent stuff post-2017 here, but uh, it appears to me that he's clearly on the decline here, that he's clearly not able to do what he did all those years ago, and especially in 1989 with The World Doesn't End, I think he's just clearly, and you know, that's fine, right? That's fine. You don't have to put out a masterpiece every single book. You can have a stinker come out every once in a while. Like, I think people read a little bit too much into that type of uh, uh, criticism. And uh, it reminds me of the famous Orson Welles quote, when he was older, you know, fat and wearing bathrobes and always smoking cigars, uh, they asked him in an interview, I forget where it was, it might have been like Life magazine or something like that back in the day, and they said, you know, don't you wish you had another Citizen Kane? Don't you wish you had another, you know, hit legendary movie? And during the interview, Orson Welles looks at him, you know, puffing that cigar and his fucking, you know, fat bathrobe, chest hair out. He's just smoking that cigar and he's like, hmm, you only need one. And it's true. You only need one. You only need one masterpiece. That's it. You need one. And if you can do more than one, you're fucking Shakespeare, baby. Like, I mean, this is, there is, it's so hard. It's so hard to just do one masterpiece, I think. That, and, you know, we're always striving to do that. I think you should as a writer, as a creator, as a poet, as anything, be striving to create masterpieces. But, you know, you only need one. And you do one, you can just kind of, you know, the decline doesn't matter as much because you've already done your thing, right? You've already contributed to the field. A toot on the vape. And we're going to start going into some poems here. But I just wanted to, you know, give you that preamble. So if it seems a little harsh in my uh, monologue in the first part of the podcast, just, you know, know that it's not, you know, the end of everything. Uh, even if this book fails or I think isn't very good compared to his other stuff. I actually have his complete works, too. His big fat book sitting next to me here. Uh... But I'm not going to go into that. Maybe, listeners, if you want me to go into that, maybe I'll do a bonus episode where I do go into some of his masterpieces. Uh, but let me know. 
Let me know about that. Heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, actually, before I get to poems, yeah, let's do the housekeeping. Let's do the housekeeping while I puff on this vape. All right. So this is a podcast. Those that don't know, we have a subscription plan. Patreon.com slash heavyboard. You get full access to this entire podcast. That includes locked episodes, bonus episodes, all for subscribers only. And we have a lot of good stuff coming up. We have some guests coming up. Uh, so you want to subscribe, make sure you get that. Patreon.com slash heavyboard. If you don't want to do that, can't afford it, there are other ways to support us. You can leave us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. That helps us out helps us grow free way to support us uh you can also check out our youtube channels at heavy board for our main channel and at heavy board for clips we put all free episodes up on that heavy board youtube channel and we put clips out there for people that don't have time or don't want to listen to the entire episode uh give those a like give those a subscribe share it with your friends and family another free way to support us it helps us out uh, and we appreciate it and as always, the links to everything we cover will be in the description. And then a reminder to listeners, I am still looking for workshop stories. If you or someone you know has had a bad experience in a workshop, I want to hear about it. In fact, I want you to write it to me in excruciating detail at heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. I really want to get into that. We have a guest coming up for a future episode of that where we'll get into personal stories, what happened, and scenarios in workshops, positive and negative. Like I said, it doesn't always have to be negative. I want to hear the positive, the negative. I want to hear the problems. I want to hear proposed solutions. I just want to hear workshop talk. I want to hear everybody talk about workshop, and I want to know your ideas, your thoughts. Send that in, heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com, because I'm interested, listeners. I'm interested, and I think it would be a lot of fun for us to have this, a little place where writers can go after they have a rough workshop and, you know, get a laugh or two right here at Heavy Board. And that's housekeeping. Okay. So let's get into a few poems here. Let's get into a few Simic stuff. And I didn't have a whole lot of notes on this, but I did have enough. Let's see how many pages. I have about... Whew, more than I thought. <laughs> I have about three pages in my little, you know, legal pad here as I write down, and I try to make them more detailed now that I'm running these by myself so that I know what I'm talking about and can go into the details so I don't forget when I get there, right? But this basic poetry book sections, it's, it's, it's in three sections here, one, two, three. There's no specific names or, um, or no, four sections, sorry. There's no specific names. They're just numbered one, two, three, four with uh, Roman numerals. They're actually quite large sections, too. I've said this before on the podcast. If you're sectioning out your poems, there better be a reason for it, uh, thematic or structurally. I see a lot of writers that just separate their books into sections just haphazardly. Uh, there's no real rhyme or reason for it. They just seem to do it because of tradition. I say avoid that. I say have a good fucking reason. Have a good reason to be separating everything. Uh, which I'll actually get into in an upcoming episode where I go into Luis Glick's masterpiece. So stay tuned for that, listeners. That'll be coming out soon. But now we got Simic in his 2017 collection. So I mentioned this poem in the monologue. It's the first poem in the book, page three. It's called Dark Knight's Flycatcher. I'm going to read this to you. So here, Dark Knight's Flycatcher. Thatched myself over with words. Night after night, thatched myself anew against the pending eraser. That's two sentences. It is two sentences, and that is it. Three little two-line stanzas, and these two lines is generous. Like Some of these have two words, thatched myself, which is fine. Okay, that could be a fine way to start the poem. But this first poem made me furious, okay? Because I saw this little kind of half-assed poem here to start the entire collection, and it just made me furious. I kept thinking of a master who was burned out and started this entire collection with such a mediocre little poem. I just couldn't believe it. It felt so much unlike the other Simic that I've read that I really just, it, it made me confused, furious, you know, all the reactions that you get from something when you don't like it. I was just so kind of like, what the fuck is going on? But okay. So the reason I say this is because there's not a, hot, a whole lot here, right? The pending eraser. So it's kind of about writing. And this is where I get, it's, it's, you get a mood. Okay, so let's talk about this poem. You get a mood, right? You get kind of a hmm, struggle, right? Like they think it's trying to in include that kind of struggle that you get. Uh, but I think it's also about writing. 
So it's about aging, writing, right? Thatched myself over with words, right? So you're fixing yourself with words. Uh, night after night, thatched myself. So it's repeating what we got the first stanza here. And this is a three stanza poem. This is a six line poem and we're already repeating what we said in the first stanza. So just, just that's one strike, okay? A new against the pending eraser. And, you know, besides the fact that these are all like, you know, uh, caps on the left side, because again, I think whenever I see caps on the left side, especially from like an older poet, I, I assume it's because they don't know how to use Microsoft Word. And then when it comes time for editing, people are like, well, what about these? And there's no, that's how I intended it. Uh, I don't buy that. So this, this kind of auto cap on this, the left justified side of the poem, it's, you know, I just view it as lazy now, especially in contemporary poetry, the way we can edit and ensure that the sentence reads as a sentence, even with delineation. I just find it as an oversight. It's laziness, oversight, etc. So here we are, and then we get back to this thing that's just like the pending eraser, right? I guess that could be death, we could say, but you know, I don't want to get too into this poem because again, it's it's two stand. Really, it's only through two stanzas because the first two repeat themselves, uh, and then this last one adds a little bit of an element. The pending eraser is really the only one, right? That adds a little bit, but I don't want to get bogged down on just one poem because there's lots of them here that I want to cover. So the very next page, page four, seeing things. And we're still in the first section here. And I guess the reason I marked a couple of these in the first section was just because I I was really surprised at how much I disliked this. I, I You know, whenever I go into a book or I go into, let's say, a book that's on this podcast, I don't want to dislike it. I want to be seduced. I want to love it. I want to be taken away by it. I want to praise it. I want to have, you know, a memorable experience with it. And when I don't get that, especially from a writer like Simic, who I usually would, it just really irritates me. And I feel like I have to take the book to task. And I'm going to do that here. I'm going to try to do that the best I can, the most professional way I can. And, and all right, I'll redo this one too. So let's do seeing things. I came here in my youth, a wind toy on a string, saw a street in hell and one in paradise, saw a room with a light in it so ailing, it could have been leaning on a cane, saw an old man in a tailor shop, kneel before a bride with pins between his lips, saw the president swear on the Bible while snow fell around him, saw a pair of lovers kiss in an empty church, and a naked man ran out of a building, waving a gun and sobbing. Saw kids wearing Halloween masks jump from one roof to another at sunset. Saw a van full of stray dogs look back at me. Saw a homeless woman berating God and a blind man with a guitar singing, Oh Lord, remember me when these chains are broken, set my body free. And that's it. That's the end of that poem. And let me say what I like about it first. So what I liked about this first is that it's very bland, but it's called, it's called seeing things. And then it's very Frank O'Hara style with this kind of observation after observation after observation. But man, does it disappoint. Uh, image to image just really bugs me. And I think that the title is in, is trying to do a lot of work for this, but it isn't. So we just moving from a little observation to observation and, and the overall connection from each observation is missing. And this is an important lesson for writers, aspiring poets, aspiring writers. Your title, when you have a poem that's maybe like a string of things together that don't quite fit, but you could make them fit together, you know, through work, rewriting, the kind of artifice of poetry, the craft, titles can do a lot of work for you. Titles can orient the reader to this in a way that something like seeing things just doesn't do. So, for example, we get a little bit of this. Saw a street in hell and one in paradise. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, saw a room with a light in it so alien it could have been leaning on a cane. And I like, this is probably the most powerful little part of it, little sentence here with that, in terms of what it does to experiment with the image. Now, here we go. Saw an old man in a tailor's shop kneel before a bride with pins between his lips. 
okay, right? <laughs> like that's the one, like he doesn't even make it interesting where the light bulb before that, right? Leaning on a cane, like does work. It, it, it makes it a unique observation of this light coming through a door or light in a, you know, an alleyway, whatever it is, right? This old light and this kind of, you know, leaning on a cane implies death and old age, which is what Simic's in right now, but things like that, right? So it just kind of struck me as not enough here. And I want to point to the Halloween masks, listeners, if you haven't read this collection, or if you have, you'll notice that something like Halloween masks come up as like a, a theme in this collection. And not just Halloween masks, but masks themselves, right? And we can read that a couple different ways. We can read it literally as a child wearing a Halloween mask like it is here. Or we can read it, you know, more metaphorically where... Um, as a mask that we wear to, you know, interact with the world, hide ourselves, protect ourselves, you know, whatever that is. Uh, I think that's, you know, so multiple uses in that case, but yeah. So going back with this kind of theme of me criticizing this for being a little too vague, a little too lackadaisical, maybe even lazy in places, page six. And like I said, I have a lot in this one because it was just the first time I was going through it. And I was like, uh, you know, irritated with what I was seeing, bored, right? all that stuff. <clears throat> but on page six, the poem is called That Elusive Something. <sighs> okay, right. This is a little bit better, but I just, that's so vague. That elusive something. <sighs> I've said this before on the podcast and I'll say it again. If you want to write a poem and a poem is very small listeners and, and you know, Shakespeare is one thing. Shakespeare covering huge huge subject matters in a very short sonnet well putting it into a sonnet form really helps you narrow that down and it really restricts you from going off the rails that's the benefit of form but in this case and you know i would say simic does straight free verse um although you notice a lot of people that do with free verse meaning they won't use the meter or the rhyme they will try to put structure other ways so in this for example, in this poem, page six, that elusive something, there are four line stanzas, four four line stanzas, and it gives it a little bit of, uh, you know, structure. That's what it's going for, at least, so that's not all over the page or one huge block or prose, right? Um, this is what separates poetry from other forms. But, okay, and, and if you want to do this, you have to get specific. So you want to talk about that elusive something. Well, what is that? Because there's a bunch of things that are elusive to us. There are a bunch of things that we feel that we can't give meaning to, that we can't give, um, we can't articulate very well. This is part of the art of poetry, right? We're trying to articulate something that's elusive. Sure. Uh, I just said, again, need a little more. Titles are the big thing I see, especially in contemporary work that not enough people put effort into. Like the title can do so much work for this stuff and it takes time, it takes rereading and rewriting to be able to come up with a good title that does all this work, orients the reader toward to what they're about to read, etc. But all right, enough of that. Let's read this poem, That Elusive Something. Was it in the smell of freshly baked bread that came to greet you out of the bakery? The sight of two girls playing with dolls on the steps of a building blackened by fire? In this city you might have seen once, in a dream or new in another life, this street calm as a sharpshooter, taking his aim in the bright sunlight. Perhaps at that woman turning a corner, pushing a baby carriage ahead of her, you ran after as if the child in it was you, and found yourself lost afterwards, in a crowd of strangers, feeling like someone, stepping out after a long illness, who can't help but see the world with his heart, and hopes not to forget what he saw. And this one's a little bit better, a little bit less vague, but it's still vague, right? And I just really, really irritates the shit out of me, as you can hear, you know. I mean, you guys, if you disagree with me, let me know, right? I'd love to have, as I said, a kind of segment in each episode where if I get a couple emails from listeners uh, before I go into the the next episode, I would take some time and like go over objections, agreements, thoughts, ideas, maybe things I didn't think about that uh, listeners brought to mind. And uh, I think that could be a lot of fun. A lot of, it was kind of an intellectual exercise and all that too. You know, don't take it so personal. Like when somebody says they don't like something in a piece of art, you know, this is a conversation. This is an open-ended conversation. Everyone has tastes, preferences, and I want to hear yours and, you know, what you think of mine to some extent there. 
And I'll read this. And another example, just to drive home this point, uh, on page seven here, Fairweathered Fr- Fairweather Friends is the title of the poem. Here, let me, get a, let me get some coffee. Let me get some toots on the vape. And let me orient you a little bit with this. What I'm going to say about this poem, Fairweather Friends, on page seven in this book is, the most poetic thing, the most the thing in this poem that's reaching for something greater than what it is, or referencing something, is the very light references to Jesus and the sponge and a betrayal, right? But notice as I read this here, that it's so minimalist, it misses saying anything. And this is what I mean by decline. It makes like kind of a lazy reference to something like this with Jesus, the sponge, the betrayal in the garden, right? And all that. Um, but then... It's so, it's so little, it's so small that it leaves you feeling like it, sh- it didn't even need to be there at all. Like it was on the verge of doing something interesting and then it just goes back to being that kind of bland, banal old man lamenting the world. But let's read it. Let's read it and you tell me what you think. Eddie with flowing locks, plus Joey and me, like Jesus and two thieves, crucified side by side on the blackboard our backs slumped in defeat, while awaiting our punishment. The Lord took pity on them, wiped, their souls clean with a sponge, not mine. I remained where I was, holding on to a piece of chalk, long after they had all gone home. Night already fallen everywhere, hard to be sure what numbers still remain there to be added, or subtracted, or whether, or whether someone is watching as I give them a last try. You just tell me, right? What do we think this is about? So friends betraying you or something like that. Fairweather friends, right? So when the, the shit hits the fan, your friends, friends will abandon you, right? And you determine who your real friends are, right? And you see the same thing like fairweather fans. People do this in sports. Like, oh, you only like this team when they're winning, right? And when they're losing, suffering for a decade while they're rebuilding the franchise or something. You know, you're like, oh, I don't like them anymore. Well, that's fairweather fandom, right? And just notice how minimalist this is, right? And I, it doesn't quite reach where it's going, right? Like Jesus and two thieves, crucified side by side. And this is referring back to Jesus's crucifixion, right? He was in the, he was crucified, at least this is how the story goes, right? With two other people that were accused of theft. Uh, so there were three people that were crucified the same day as Jesus. At least that's how the story goes in the Christian mythology, right? And as I always say, listeners, if you don't know your kind of Christian mythology, you have never read the Bible, um, Western literature is going to be tough for you, all right? There's a lot of references to the creation myths uh, that make up the Western world here, including those that were even before Christianity. So we go further back, right? The Greeks is really where most of Western literature starts. Uh, but okay, let's... Uh, Let's go on. And I, I just reminder, like, you know, this, this all caps on the one side. It's so stupid. It's so stupid. It really gets under my skin. And it's always older writers that don't quite know how to use word processors that do this. And maybe this is something that's left over from typewriters. I don't know because I was born at a time when you never had to use a typewriter to type something up because that technology was already dead by the time I was born. Uh, and I'm not that old. <laughs> but... You know, I, I just think it's lazy. It's a it's an oversight. It's missed details. And this is what I always talk about on this podcast. Missed details. Details matter. And details matter so much in large creative projects like this. Poetry, fiction, writing a whole fictional world. The details, they matter. And this is what separates the good from great. This is what separates the bad from good, the good from great, you know, everything. The mediocre from the good, right? The mediocre from the bad. Like, this details matter. So, you know, say what you will. It was around page 15 when I started to get this kind of very, you know, heavy-handed feeling of lament. That was the main theme in this book that I mentioned in the monologue, and I'll, you know, go into a little bit here. But I couldn't help but have a solemn feeling uh, as I read through this. And kind of, you know, maybe it was just me. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. You know, Simic is close to the end of his life. And me, I'm close to approaching middle age. And uh, as you approach those years, I find it hard not to reflect on the years you've already lived, right? So I get that. You know, Harold Bloom, when he was towards the end of his life, 
his memoirs and things, he was very much more reflect, much more reflective than um, you would, than he was in his, his earlier years, right? And this is to be expected, but as Simic kind of ages towards death, I noticed this in poems like Signs of the Times on page 15, right? Uh, where he's, you know, lamenting the closed-up library, as I already said, and uh, also on page 17, Missed Chance, that really kind of give us a, and like, they give us a dismal image of the life of the poet, like a like kind of a melancholy of regret, despair at the state of literature, and... When, well, let me get to that. I'll read Signs of the Time. I don't have much to say about it, but I want to read it to you guys. And then I'll read um, Missed, missed, uh, missed Chance. So Signs of the Times, page 15. For a mind full of disquiet, a trembling roadside weed is Cassandra, and so is the sight of a boarded-up public library, the rows of books beyond its windows, unopened for years, the sickly old dog on its steps, and a man slumped next to him, his mouth working mutely, like an actor unable to recall his lines, at the end of some tragic farce. And Mischance. And Mischance is the last poem in the first section. So let's read this one. Mischance. One afternoon, looking for a shortcut, I found myself on a street that I'd never known was there, and might have gone no further, with my foot arrested in mid-stride, before a dogwood tree in flower, towering in someone's yard, and a few brightly colored toys scattered along their driveway, but no child or anyone else in sight. One caged bird chirping in a window, who may have been in on the secret. I didn't wait to find out, but hurried away, wherever it seemed more important for me to show my face that day. What I wanted to say, and why I read these two poems and kind of grouped them together, not just because they're towards the end of this section, but this is where I got the real big sense of lament, as I said. And it's interesting, what I wanted to mention is it's interesting that this happens to so many writers and poets and critics as they get older. And I get that's part of getting older, right? Like the world changes and you're still there and it's not the world you grew up in, et cetera, et cetera. And it can be just little things, right? Most of the time people focus on the huge sweeping changes, but like those, I think people don't care about the big changes so much as the tiny little ones that affect their everyday life and things like that. Like a small public library closing up and him walking by and seeing it or the speaker walking by and seeing it. But it is interesting that this happens, right? This kind of despair at the state of literature. And it seems that almost every great writer in history had a similar sentiment when it came towards the end of their life and what they saw happening with the craft. They, th they think it's getting worse, which leads to the interesting question, is it actually getting worse, or is it just a thought, right? Or is it just a reflex to something? I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I'll be able to come up with an answer to that, but, you know, it's just something to think about and something to consider. And in the second section, I'll say the second section, is it starts to get even worse. In the second section with poems like All Things in Precipitous Decline on page 26. Uh, and this is, this is kind of a beyond a, a lament about literature and more about a lament of observable societal decay. Uh, and kind of an old man seeing what's happening and saddened by it, right? And this is where I kept thinking of Yeats, uh, you know, that that is no country for old men, right? Sailing to Byzantium. Uh, I couldn't help but keep thinking of that line as I was reading this. But, you know, all, right. all things in precipitous decline. Let's read it. Like a pickup with its wheels gone in some rusty and disassembled antique stoves and refrigerators, in a front yard choked with weeds, outside a shack with a plastic sheet draped over one of its windows, where a beer bottle went through one star-studded night in June. Or was it a shotgun we heard? The police inquiry, if there is one, is proceeding at a snail's pace. In the meantime, the old recluse got himself a bad-tempered mutt to keep his junk company and bark at all coomers, including the mailman, leaving a rare letter in the mailbox. And I just want to ask you listeners, what do you think when you read something like that or hear something like that? Do you think it's positive? Do you think it's negative, right? Is it sad? 
because it's talking about this kind of recluse, right? This old recluse. And again, I don't want to get speculative and start talking about how the speaker is Simic, although the speaker may be some version of Simic. Again, this is art. This isn't necessarily a reflection of the artist, but something to think about. So I know, I know I keep going on, but let's, let's, let's go to section three here because there's a poem called the movie. And I mentioned, I didn't mention the poem itself, but I mentioned the line about how being in uh, occupied Nazi Europe or Nazi occupied Europe when he was a kid. Uh, and I just want to read you this one because it's a good example of what I'm talking about, where the last stanza in this three stanza poem does all of the heavy lifting. And really, it's just like the first sentence of the last stanza here, right? And it is so casual. And it's so matter of fact that it loses almost all of the power I think Simic was intending in this poem. And let's, let's see what I mean here. The movie. My childhood, an old silent movie. Oh, winter evenings, when mother led me by the hand into a darkened theater where a film had already started, like someone else's dream, into which we happened to drop in, with a young woman writing a letter and pausing to wipe her eyes, in a room looking out on some harbor, and a bird sitting quietly in her cage. No one was paying any attention to, nor to the white ship on the horizon, perhaps drawing closer, perhaps sailing away. It was an occupied city, I forgot to say. We trudged our way home, bundled up heavily against the cold, keeping our eyes to the ground, along the treacherous, dimly lit streets. So let me ask you this. What is this about? Is this about a movie? Or is this about something else? And as I said in these first two stanzas, what do we get? We get the description of what is on the screen and what's happening here. And then the most powerful line is that first line of that third stanza. It was an occupied city, I forgot to say. That's the most powerful line. And again, it's kind of just thrown in there at the end of this poem. And it's so late in the poem and it comes back as, I forgot to say, I forgot to mention. Like it's, it's putting it that way lessens the impact, right? And because of this kind of casual insertion here about like, oh, the real tragedy was an occupied city, literally Nazi occupied city, right? Uh, it, again, it's just so casual and matter of fact, it loses its power. So this type of line that would normally be very powerful is not as powerful because it's buried in this kind of rest of these banal observations, the movie, blah, 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 blah. I did mention the on cloud nine cliche. So on cloud nine, I can't believe a poet of Simic's caliber would title a poem on cloud nine. Uh, just unbelievable. I, I, I don't even know what to say about it, quite honestly, besides... It strikes me as someone who's given up. But, you know, that's just what it is. Okay, so I talked a lot of, like, negative about this book, but there are some things that I like in this book. One of them being the poem Swept Away on page 42. And The Saint on page 47. Now, these are two of my favorite poems in the collection. They're probably the two poems that work for me the best when I read through this. But, you know... It, it was, I was so desperate for to, to like something by this point. You know, I'm almost, I'm over halfway in the book at this point. You know, you're 40 some pages in. I was so desperate for something to stand out that maybe I just picked these out because they were better than the other ones. I don't know. But, you know, not by much. Uh, you know, they suffer from the same thing. So it's just bland and the images are expected and plain. So it's used up. That's why I kept thinking of this image of burning out, decline, used up, hollow. It's just disappointing. It's disappointing from a poet like Simic. Let me read Swept Away because that's actually a good one. Swept Away. Melville had the sea and Poe his nightmares to thrill them and haunt them. And you have the faces of strangers, glimpsed once and never again. Like that woman whose eye you caught on a crowded street in New York, who spun around after she went by as if she had just seen a ghost, leaving you with a memory of her hand rising to touch her flustered face and muffle what might have been something she was saying as she, as she was swept away. And I like that one. I like that one because it's a concise little image. 
concise little image. But again, the title is lazy. Swept away. Swept away. It's a cliche. It's a cliche. <laughs> like, I, I, am I the only one noticing this? And I get, you know, this isn't the book that was highly praised and awarded. I get that. I'm just saying, come on, people. Am I the only one noticing this? Like, sometimes it feels like it. Jesus. Let's go to the other one. The Saint, the other one I liked. Let's read it. The woman I love is a saint who deserves to have people falling on their knees before her in the street asking for her blessing. Instead, here she is on the floor, hitting a mouse with a shoe as tears run down her face. I just, I, I don't even know what else to say at this point. I just how disappointing that is. How plain, expected, borderline cliche, the two things that are opposed against one another in the poem just don't work um, because they're too bland. Oh, my, the woman I love should be worshipped, people falling at their feet. What a cliche image. What a cliche way to say it. And then we have to have this kind of, you know, oh, she's hitting a mouse with a shoe and crying. Again, you could talk, some would accuse him of sexism, but that's not what we do on this podcast. Because, again, is it sexist to say that women cry when mice run through the house? I mean, or is it true? I remember stories whenever we'd have a mouse in the house or something, my mother would literally start screaming, like like pushing me to go kill it, like kind of standing up on a chair, shouting, like get it out of the house and like make her, me or my father, you know, or my brother go, go get the mouse out of the house. <laughs> Very vivid memory of that happening a few times, actually. But all right, let's move on. I'm almost done. Okay. Page 49, poem in someone's backyard. Uh, another good example of what I'm talking about, what I mentioned, kind of the filler poems in the monologue. What do I mean by filler poems? Think of an album, right? Like a music album when you talk about filler songs, right? Meaning that the album was built around four or five singles, right? And then there's like 15 songs on the album. And if they're not all good songs, I would call them filler songs, right? Same thing with poetry here. So when some of these poems are like this one, four lines long, I'm automatically skeptical. This better be fucking great if it's four lines long. But instead, it's an example of what I call the laziness. This kind of, an idea of like Simic's reputation, you know, what he can enjoy from his, from his well-earned reputation. Like I said, I'm not taking anything away from his reputation, which is well-earned. But it is clear that he's just kind of living on that now. This kind of earned reputation. But this book is a dying fart from an almost corpse. And poems like this prove it. So in someone's backyard, what a pretty sight to see two lovers drink wine and kiss. A dog on his hind legs begging for table scraps. Is that even a poem? Can you even call that a poem? Or is that just a sentence smashed into some type of lineation? And his lineation is fine. We're talking Charles Simic here. Notice I didn't say anything about the line breaks because they all work. All are well thought out, which is why I'm irritated by the, you know, all caps on the left margin, but okay. Yeah, that's a filler poem. Filler poem. Another thing on page 50, same one right after it. Poem called Cherry Pie. Now this one is seven lines long. And let's read you this one. If it's true that the devil has his finger in every pie, he must be waiting for the night to fall, the darkness to thicken in the yard so we won't see him. Lick the finger he dipped in your pie, the one you took out of the oven, love, and left to cool by the open window. Come on. One big bland cliche. And I call these filler, these are fragments, these are incomplete poems. Like the complete thought is not on the page, it is hovering somewhere outside of the work. And that's really why I take issue with it. But, alright, the last one, in the last section here, the title poem, Scribbled in the Dark, what am I looking for? Page 63. Fuck, went past it here, okay. Scribbled in the Dark, I would even call Scribbled in the Dark a fucking filler poem. Here, alright. But it's important to read the title poem, right? We talk about this on this podcast all the time. Scribbled in the dark. A shout in the street. 
someone locking horns with his demon, then calm returning, the wind tussling the leaves, the birds in their nests, pleased to be rocked back to sleep, night turning cool, streams of blood in the gutter, waiting for sunrise. And this one kind of sums up, I think, the whole themes of the book, the blandness, the kind of observations and I think these types of bland observations would have been more impactful in the 80s and 90s when that was trendy in poetry and right now it's just sad that he's still kind of doing the same thing in his old age here he's not going for anything uh, harder or more magnificent or bigger it's actually getting more bland and more banal which is the problem here but i think this poem really did cement the theme of tragedy and despair the lament for the world and literature and not quite bitter but almost bitter there's there's this kind of fading away in this collection that like i said really shocked me it disappointed and shocked me uh and maybe that cover art is just I should have known by that cover art. Literally, even the picture of the old man sitting on the bench. It's like kind of a cartoon image, listeners. Uh, little birds being fed bread loaves. The man is just watching them. And there's like this kind of, not even a smile, just sad look on his face. And, whew, man. Man. Even giants fall, listeners. Even giants fall. But that's my overall impression with Charles Simic's Scribbled in the Dark. Uh, I put this one on the list haphazardly just because I was like, that's ah, Simic. I want to read one of these, you know, read one of his newer ones that isn't in his collected that I have. And oh, man, was it a disappointment. Nothing else to say about it, but just that disappointment. I hope I made my points, but, you know, as always, I want to hear from you. Let me know. Write it in, heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. But that's it. That's it. A reminder that we're still looking for those workshop stories. Send those in to heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. Again, please subscribe at patreon.com slash heavyboard, where you can get full access to this podcast, bonus episodes, all that good stuff for subscribers only. If you don't want to do that, can't afford it, there are other ways to support us. You can leave us a five-star review on Apple or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. That helps us out, helps us grow. You can check out our YouTube channel, at Heavyboard on YouTube. That's our main channel. And at Heavyboard Clips for our Clips channel. Give those a subscribe. Give those a like. Give those a share. That helps us out. It's a free way to support us. And as always, everything we covered will be linked in the description of this episode. So you can buy yourself a copy, build out your own library, all that good stuff. This has been Heavy Bore. See Heavy. Bored. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy. Bored. Sweats and the day sweats, pal. Pal, I do.